Father, thank you for gathering us all together in this room and allowing people to watch from elsewhere. We're praying for an outpouring of your Holy Spirit now, the spirit of redemption, the spirit who regenerates, the spirit who illuminates, the spirit who fills. We pray that your spirit would illuminate these words in your word. We pray that they would come to us with Holy Spirit clarity and power and that your word would not return unto you void, but it would accomplish every purpose in every heart, every purpose for which you send it. We pray that today may be the day of salvation for some, that they may leave darkness and turn to light, that they may leave being lost and become found, that they would leave being in unbelief and they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Praying for all in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. So let's look at Ephesians 1.18 again, please. Notice there are two, two phrases, one comma in between them. The first phrase, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That's where we're going first. We want to understand that phrase. And then we're going to the second phrase. It's a purpose clause that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So to summarize that, he wants your eyes wide open to the things of God. And here's the first thing he wants you to see. What is the hope to which he has called you? Or as other versions have it, what is the hope of your calling? So let's consider the phrase, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. What's that about? What's that mean? The word enlightened is the Greek word photizo, from which we get photon, photograph, etc. Uh, it means light. What does it mean to be enlightened? What's he really want there? Here's what it is not. He is not saying, I want you to get more information, as if then you get that information and you say, well, now I'm enlightened. Like there's something I don't know and you do know and I say so, all right, Laban, enlighten me, man. And you'd give me more information and then I'm enlightened. That's not what he's talking about. He's actually talking about something very different from that, something very far from that. And to get it, we need to go back to, well, why would we need to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened? What were we before our eyes of the heart were enlightened? And we were, this is not a word, but I'm going to use it. We were and darkened. So first we need to figure out Okay, what was that like? So we'll really get what this is, having the eyes of your hearts now enlightened. What was the, what was the endarkened part? What was that all about? And Scripture is very clear on that. We'll start, and I'm not going to put these verses up from Genesis 3, but in Genesis 3, where we read about the fall of the race, when our first parents took that forbidden fruit and ate it, and God had told them, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. It's a Hebraism, dying, you shall die. It's an intensifying way uh, that they would do it in Hebrew. You're really going to die on that day. Well, they didn't die on that day. They lived, lived many hundreds of years. Yeah, he wasn't talking about physical death. He was talking about a spiritual death. And sure enough, in the very moment, in the day that they ate of that forbidden fruit, they died to God. And we sinned in them and fell with them in their first transgression. So we're all born dead to God. We're all born spiritually dead. Paul will take this up in Ephesians 2 and verse 1. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses 
and sins. He doesn't say you were wounded a little bit by sin. He doesn't say you were you're bruised a little bit. He says you were, you were dead, meaning no response to the things of God. Totally unresponsive, totally incapable of receiving and believing and responding to. You were dead. So we all died with our first parents, and they died when they ate the forbidden fruit. And one of the results of being dead is you're undarkened. So there are various effects of the fall, and one of them, one set of them really is called the, they're called the noetic effects, not Noah, nothing to do with Noah. Noetic comes from the Greek word nous, which means mind. There are mental effects. There are cognitive effects of our fall. So to start with, what that means is we're all pretty dumb, right? I mean, really, are we very smart? No, we're all pretty dumb. The evolutionists, of whom I am not one, say um, we haven't evolved very far. Christians know the problem is we fell. So we don't reason well, we don't do logic well, especially when our emotions get played into it, and especially when there's something we really want. Our emotions and our lusts and our cravings can bend our logic very easily, but even without those things, we're still not very good at logic and reasoning. Those are noetic effects of the fall. But there's a larger noetic effect of the fall. It's not just that we're not good at reasoning, it's that we cannot see or appropriate or receive, for example, God's word as God's word. This is why people can look at creation and not see God. Like, I can't do that. How can they possibly do that? They do that. Lots of them do that. How can they do that? They're blinded. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. There are noetic effects. One of them is they can't see. They can't understand. They can't receive. They can't appropriate. How can they read God's Word and not say, that's the most amazing book on the planet? They read it and they go, huh, why would anybody read that? They could look right at Jesus Christ, and they did, and they said, he's doing the works of Satan, let's kill him. The sinless Son of God, who is the effulgence of the Father's glory, and they didn't see any of that. All they could see was, let's get him. These are noetic effects of the fall. So one of the effects is, when we ate the forbidden fruit, we closed our eyes to God. And when we closed our eyes to God, God turned out the light, and it got dark. And that's our world. There are some crucial texts that describe this thing to us. We've been speaking from Genesis 3. Let's go over to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Crucial text for this. Paul says, "'Now this I say and testify in the Lord.'" that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Well, how do they walk? How do they live? What? In the futility of their minds. There's something wrong with their minds. All the Gentiles, some of them are very bright, some of them are not so bright. But they're all in the same category. They all walk in the futility. That word could also be translated vanity. It's purposelessness. It's not accomplishing the thing it was intended to accomplish. And they all, all the Gentiles, walk in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. Remember God said, you will die? They're, they're dead. They're alienated from the life of God 
because of the ignorance that is in them, and what's that come from? Due to their hardness of heart. So their hearts are hard. They don't want God to be God. They want that life, not this life. They want to be their own God. They want to worship idols. They don't want God to be God to them. They don't want Jesus Christ to be Lord. They don't want the Bible to be true. And we were all like that. So what happened at the the fall? Note Paul's cluster here of highly descriptive terms describing our fallen nature, the effects of the fall. We don't receive the things of God. We are darkened in our understanding. All right, it becomes even more clear. Let's jump over to 2 Corinthians 3, verses 14 through 16. And now he leaves the Gentiles and he talks about Israelites, Jewish people. But their minds were hardened. So what's wrong with them? Why don't they believe? Their minds, there's something wrong with their mind. They're hardened. I will remind you of Pharaoh in Exodus 9. It says, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. And then later it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Well, which is it? Well, it's both. When you harden your heart to the things of God, your reward is God hardens you still more. Hardened heart begets hardened heart. And what's wrong with the Israelites? Their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. So now he changes his metaphor, and now it's a veil. There's a veil, and they can't can't see through it. Everything's dark. They can't see Christ in the Bible. They can't see salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone in the Bible. They can read the words, but they say, doesn't mean a thing to me. They can cognitively understand the words, but it doesn't go in. They don't receive it. They don't appropriate it. They don't say, that's amazing. I believe. Why not? Because the veil remains. It's only taken away through Christ. Yes, he goes on. To this day, whenever Moses has read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. What's the hymn say? I once was blind, but now I see. Looking at the same Bible, when I was blind, looked like gibberish. Looked like folly. Now the, the, the veil is removed and your eyes are open and God has shown light and you look at that Bible and you go, I love it. You've received the love of the truth, 2 Thessalonians. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, another helpful passage on this. And Paul writes, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Well, how do they get veiled? Here, listen to this. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. That's how they got blind. The God of the world did it. We're going to talk about how. The God of this world. Who's that? Satan, the prince of the power of the air, the deceiver, the enemy of God and the enemy of your soul. And during this time, God and his sovereignty, who is the only God that gets a capital G, has allowed Satan a certain sway over the world. He has limited powers, temporary, usurped, subordinate powers, but they are substantial and they make a difference on the planet. And so Satan, the deceiver, 
the Bible says, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Notice the term, he has blinded. It does not say they have a little bit of astigmatism and don't see quite clearly. It does not say they're a little nearsighted or they're a little farsighted. No, they're blind. They're dead, and so they don't see. They're blind to the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. They look at it and don't see it to be the thing that they need for their souls. So who did this to them? The God of this world has blinded them. How, when, where? At the fall. At the fall. He tempted our first parents. They took. We all took with them. We all sinned with them and fell in them in their first transgression. And as a result, because of what he did to humanity, we are all blind. We're all born blind. It's only in Christ the veil's removed. It's only in Christ we get eyes to see. It's Satan who blinded the race. He did it at the fall. Also, ever since, all down through history, he gives the race frequent booster shots of blindness. He fills the world with false religions, false philosophies, naturalism, humanism, vain hopes, anything to keep people from Jesus Christ. He might use a professor at a college. There might be one who's godly. There's another one who very much is not godly. He might use laws. He might use government. He might use all kinds of things. But ever since the fall, he keeps giving booster shots and booster shots, booster shots to the human race to keep us in darkness. And again, this is why people can look at creation and not see a creator, which I can't understand that. I know I did it for 17 years, but I can't remember that. I cannot understand. I couldn't possibly look at creation and not see a creator. This is why when Jesus walked the earth, they could look at him and not see a savior and not see God in the flesh. And they could say, he has a demon, let's kill him. This is why, because they were blind and dead in their trespasses and sins. This is why they can look at the Bible, the gospel, and not see the wisdom of God. Bunch of stories written long ago, who cares? This is what's wrong with the race. We've been darkened. The devil tempted us. We succumbed to his temptation, and it got dark. In, Paul, in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about this, and I don't have these verses to put up for you. But he says, the things of God, and what he means by that is his eternal power and his Godhead or his Godness, that there's deity and he's powerful. He says that is clearly revealed and plainly seen. But what do people do with it in their darkness and in their deadness? They don't see it. Instead, they have an exchange program. They suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness and they exchange it for a lie and they worship and serve created things and all of their idols, rather than God who is blessed forever. So here's what you need to understand. At the fall, our natures changed. Our natures changed. It's not just that, well, they made a decision, and that affected them, and now the next people, they might make a good or a bad decision. I, I could make good or bad decisions, and we're all just here before God making good or bad decisions. No, the fall actually did something to us. Our natures changed, and part of that means we cannot receive the light of the gospel. We cannot receive the truth of God. Our eyes are shut. There is a veil, 
And that's where we all were. You tracking with me? Thank you for those three who said yes. So you might ask, okay then, then how does anybody ever believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved? How does anybody come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Well, that brings us back to our verse. Now we're back to Ephesians 1.18. Let's look at it again. Here's how. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that's how. How did you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? God enlightened your heart and you believed. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know, that you may now know things that you couldn't know or receive or love or delight in before. This is how anyone believes and becomes a follower of Jesus Christ. God enlightens the eyes of your heart and then, logically then, it's actually chronologically at the same time, concomitantly, but you you have hardened eyes and a hardened heart. God enlightens the eyes of your heart and you see and believe and call upon the name of the Lord. But you couldn't do that alone in your darkness. The Holy Spirit illuminates you, regenerates you, makes you receptive to God's revelation and you believe on the Lord Jesus and are saved. That's what God does when he saves you. Yes, he wipes out the record of your transgressions. Bless the Lord. Yes, he forgives you of all your sins. Bless the Lord. Yes, he gives you everlasting life and the hope of heaven. Bless the Lord. But he also does things not just for you. He also does things to you and in you. And some of the most important things he does in you are are these. He opens your eyes. So you see Jesus Christ as glorious and beautiful. Let me show you. Remember the veil? There's a veil they can't see when they read the Old Covenant. Well, the veil gets removed. Let's see it in 2 Corinthians 3.18. Paul writes, and we all, he's talking to believers now, and we all with unveiled face. There's another one of my many hundreds of possible names for a church. The Unveiled Face Bible Church. (laughs) Just kidding. Let's stay with Cornerstone. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. See, we can see. And we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Holy Spirit unveils your face, and you see. In the day of God's power, according to his sovereign purposes for you, He sent the Holy Spirit to you and unveiled your eyes and you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and were saved. Here's another passage about that. This one's a zinger, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness. When did he do that? When? I heard one voice. There's 200 people in this room. When? Thank you. I heard three voices. At creation. So there was nothing but darkness. And God spoke and said, let there be light and light appeared. So the God who did that has shown in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just like at creation, so at recreation, in regeneration, in conversion, in salvation, God says, let there be light. And now for the first time ever, there is saving light in your soul, in your heart, in your mind. And he's overturning that horrible, darkening, noetic effect of the fall. And he's making you a creature capable of seeing God's truth, of seeing God's light. And you repent and you believe. This is what happens when you believe on the Lord Jesus. Now, let me just clarify something. Maybe you say, well, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a believer, so what am I supposed to do? Am I just supposed to wait and hope God enlightens me someday? No, no, no. The Bible gives you a command and says, you should repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ right now. And if you don't, you're sinning. So you don't wait for God to do something. You repent and believe. And when you did, it's because God gave you light. It's because God's Spirit regenerated you. All right? I know some of you are believers, you love the Lord, and you would see this a little differently. Okay, I love you. We can coexist. You can be a happy member of this church. We can even have fights about it now and then, just so we're friendly when we end. It'll be all right. So how come I'm a believer? God's shown in my heart. God gave me light. So back to our verse, Ephesians 1.18, let's look at it again. We were in darkness, but now we're people who have the eyes of our hearts enlightened, and it's for a purpose that you may know, that you may know. So in, in pedagogy, theory about how to teach and all that, they talk about readiness. That student's just not ready to learn calculus. I've never been ready to learn calculus. Lacking readiness. And so in, in, in regeneration, in new life, you lacked readiness. God gives you readiness. When God saves you, he does something wonderful to you. He gives you Holy Spirit illumination. Look at the words of one of Charles Wesley's great hymns. He wrote thousands of great hymns. We still sing some of them. That's how good they were. They're from the 1700s, and they're still amazing. And here's one. I love this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. What's the nature part there? That's what you come out of your mother's womb with, your fallen nature. It's nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. What's the word quickening mean? It means life-giving. It made you alive because you were dead. Thine eye diffused, sent out a quickening ray. What happened? I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Man, we should just stop and sing that right now. Where's Jason Wallace? Here's another line from one of Wesley's amazing hymns. Let us love the Lord who bought us, pitied us when enemies, called us by his grace and taught us. Now this, gave us ears and gave us eyes. God gave you eyes. And for the first time you saw Jesus Christ as desirable and lovely. 
God gave you ears, and the first time ever you heard God's word as God's word, and you received it as it is the word of God. So that's what Paul is teaching us here. We're believers, we're regenerated, we're illuminated by the Spirit, we've had our eyes open, so we're ready to learn. Now, what's he want us to learn? There are three things. We're going to look at the first of them today. Let me show you the three. Three things Paul wants us to know. First, he wants us to know, this is for today, the hope of your calling. Second, he wants us to know the riches of his inheritance in us, the saints. And thirdly, he wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us. Today, the first of those. He wants us to know now that we have readiness, now that we can see, now that we have eyes, now that we have ears, here's what he wants us to know. He wants you to know what is the hope of your calling. Let's read it, Ephesians 1.18. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. So all that buildup is for this. Here's what he wants you to know. You were in darkness. Now you've been enlightened. Now that you're enlightened, what does he want you to know? Here's the first thing he lists. I want you to know, believers, I want you to know the hope of your calling. Do, do you know? Do you sufficiently know? Do you powerfully know what is the hope of your calling? I want to try and help you if you don't. What is the hope of our calling? In one word, heaven. He wants you to have heaven as your hope. He wants you to live like a citizen of heaven who can't wait to experience the glory of heaven. He wants you to understand, and we're going to see this from some scriptures, that all the little things we hope for, those are little beanie hopes. Psh, they hardly mean anything at all. We make them so big. We hope so ardently for them. Our hopes are dashed and we're so discouraged when we don't get them. And he's like, brush them right off the page. They don't even count. You have a hope. And he wants you to reckon on this hope and fix yourself on this hope and hope upon it completely as we will see. So let me show you some of the references about this hope. There are many. I'm just going to show you some. In Acts 23, 6, Paul is on trial, and here's what he says to his accusers. Here's what he says in court. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. What are you on trial for, Paul? I have a hope. What is your hope? It's the resurrection of the dead. That's my hope. That's the believer's hope. Or in uh, Romans chapter 5 and verse 2, he says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. When do, we, when do we experience the fullness of the glory of God? At the last day and beyond. And we are rejoicing in that. There might not be a lot of great things going on in your life to rejoice about. You might be going through very hard times. Where's the joy in life? There's your joy in life. We rejoice in that. Maybe the worse life is, the better job we do at rejoicing in that. Amen? It's like, well, there's nothing for me down here. Lord Jesus, take me. And again, Romans 8, 23 to 25. We wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of of our bodies, for in this hope we were saved, we wait for it with patience. 
So it's kind of rough down here, but I'm patiently enduring. I'm patiently waiting. I've got my heart fixed on my adoption as a son and the redemption of my body. That is my hope. That's what I'm living for. That's what I'm pointing toward. That's what is most meaningful in life to me. Colossians 1.5, Paul describes it again, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. It's in heaven. Heaven is your hope. Or Colossians 1.27, he talks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Or Titus 2.13, here's how you're living, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What are you looking for? Well, a raise. What are you looking for? We want to sell a little house and get a bigger house. Psh. Man, I hope you get that. That's nice. Don't put much stock in it. What are you looking for? I am looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of my great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And listen to what Peter writes about this, 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. That's a cool phrase. You know, you had a long robe, it's like down your ankles, and you want to run, and you can't run with that thing down at your ankles, but you have a belt on, so you pull up the loose ends of it, and you tuck it into your belt, and now you're ready to go, man. That's what he's saying. He's saying your mind is like flapping in the world. Just gird it up. Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully. Fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Rest your hope fully. So you, you were in darkness. God has shined light. You've believed on the Lord Jesus. Now you see him as lovely. You see the word of God as the word of God. And what he wants you to do now is turn that way and, again, rest your hope fully, believer. Rest it fully. Yeah, but I also really, really, really hope I'll get, and you fill in the blank, little hopes. Now, rest your hope fully. What are you hoping for? Heaven. What are you hoping for? Heaven. What are you hoping for? Heaven. What are you hoping for? The glory of God. Rest it fully. So, that's what our passage is about. Now, I've got four applications, five, sorry, sorry, five applications. Here's the first. This hope renders all other hopes hopeless. And we get that from Ephesians 2.12. He says, of all the Gentiles, they are without hope in the world. You say, well, what do you mean they're without hope? They have all kinds of things they're hoping for. That one's hoping for a raise, and that one's hoping they'll get a wife, and you know, that one's hoping they'll get well, and that one's hoping for, and there's no end to the things they're hoping. What do you mean they're without hope in the world? Ah, oh, you see, when you don't have this hope, you don't really have any hope because all those little hopes don't count. They don't add up to much. They don't mean much. We make a big deal out of them. We shouldn't because they don't really matter. We got one big hope, and it renders all other hopes hopeless. They're just little. They're puny. To reject Jesus Christ is to leave yourself without real hope in the world. There's a hymn that says, all the vain things that charm us most, we sacrifice them to his blood. 
I'm not hoping in those vain things. I'm hoping in the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? This hope renders all other hopes hopeless. So don't get too excited about other hopes. Yeah, hope we can go on vacation. I spent a couple hours this week booking lodging at different places in New Hampshire and up the coast of Maine so Debbie and I can spend two weeks up there on a motorcycle in May. I hope it's going to be a great time. We're going to trailer the bike up there, but then get on the bike and ride all that. I hope it's going to be a wonderful time. But you know what? Compared to this, no offense, dear. Gird up the loins of your mind. This hope renders all other hopes hopeless. Secondly, by way of application, only this hope completely satisfies. Where do you get that? Romans 5, 5. This hope will not disappoint. Well, what's the implication of that? All other hopes will. Some of you were hoping the Ravens were going to win last Sunday. You were hoping the Ravens were going to hand the, the Steelers their butts on a platter, right? Didn't happen. And all kinds of other things we can hope for. Your hopes are dashed. This hope will not disappoint. You will not get to heaven and go, aw. Is that it? You won't get to heaven and God will say, ha ha, I was just kidding. There's actually nothing great up here. No, you won't be disappointed. You're going to be like amazed. This is a jillion times better than I ever imagined when I was down there on the planet. This hope will not disappoint. All other hopes fail to satisfy. Peter calls our one big hope an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's our hope. It won't disappoint. Only that hope will completely satisfy a hungry, thirsty soul. Third point of application, this hope directs our interests. That's from Titus 2.13. We are looking for something. We're looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're looking. Tap you on the shoulder. What are you doing? I'm looking and I'm waiting. What are you waiting for? What are you looking for? The coming of Jesus Christ or my departure to go and be with him? We're looking for the blessed hope. We are about heaven like snobbish New York City people might be about New York City. They're like, there's New York City, and then there's everywhere else, which is like nowhere, right? It's just New York City, is it? It's the place. We're like that about heaven. There's heaven, and then everything else is kind of nowhere. There's heaven, and everything else is kind of blah, This hope directs our interests. It makes us keenly interested in heaven. Heaven easily eclipses earth. Heaven is in our hearts. Heaven is in our souls. This hope directs our interests. Fourth, this hope is purifying. Like if you really have it, you'll be working on living a morally pure, law-abiding, Christ-focused, gospel-empowered, spirit-indwelt life. 
1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. That's our hope. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If you're really hoping in heaven, a place where you'll be pure, if you're really hoping in heaven, one of the great things about it is that you will finally be done sinning. Like, won't that be great? You die, you wake up in heaven, and you will never sin again. Will that be good? Well, if you think that'll be good, then it's going to purify you now. How can you hope for that, but it not change you now? Yeah, I want to be holy. Okay, then that's going to make me want to be holy right now. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. One final point of application, and we'll be done. This hope is stabilizing to your psyche, to your soul. Hebrews 6.19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Does your soul have an anchor? Yeah, this hope we have as an anchor. It anchors our souls. Both, it's an anchor that is both sure, it's not gonna pull loose, and steadfast, it's always there, and which enters the presence. I love the Greek word for presence, so I'll tell you what it is. It's esoteron, from like we get our word esoteric, something that's on the inside. Our anchor, the anchor for our soul, enters the presence behind the veil. There's an old hymn from the Moody Sankey era. Maybe some of you will know it. We, we're not going to sing it here. It's like one of those follow the bouncing ball type tunes. How many know this one? It's will your anchor hold? Yeah, a couple of you know that. Let's the three of us do that up here someday. Tell Wallace, come on, we want to sing our song. It, it's an anchor for your soul. So whatever winds are blowing on you, whatever storms are beating down on you, your soul is anchored. I'm not going anywhere. I got my hope fixed completely upon the grace that'll be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, now that you're enlightened, now that you have readiness, now that you can learn, this is the first thing I want you to learn. I want you to learn to be a Christian who's really, 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 really got yourself fixed on that hope. It will deliver you from many disappointments and many sorrows. And in it, you can rejoice greatly, no matter what is going on. So I ask you, do you have this hope? Peter says that we are born again to a living hope. Do you have this hope? How can I get this hope? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and you also get regenerated and you'll be regenerated, born again to a living hope. You get it by calling upon the name of the Lord. Have you called upon the name of the Lord? Is Jesus your God and your Savior? Do you have this hope? Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us a day where we get to look at these passages in your word. We pray that your word will be powerful and effectual 
even in, in the power of the Holy Spirit, to give new life to people who have listened to these passages from your word. Father, would you save people in this room? Would you save people who are listening in with us? May they right now call upon the name of the Lord. Lord Jesus, please save me, an unworthy sinner. Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me. Call upon him for that salvation which is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Father, many of us are your blood-bought children. We pray that you will fix our hope completely on that grace to be brought to us in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.